Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. Sarah Marino is a Colorado-based photographer known for her intimate landscape and botanical photography. Sarah's portfolio features a diverse range of subjects, including grand landscapes, intimate landscapes, abstract renditions of nature, and creative portraits of plants. Her approach is seeking opportunities in any landscape, finding joy in photographing nature's small scenes and a style of photography focused on exploration and connecting with nature. In addition to making photos, Sarah's goals are to provide helpful information through her workshops that inspires others to become better, more creative and happier photographers, whilst promoting stewardship and the conservation of wild places. We talk about her passion for the outdoors and how it influences her work as a landscape photographer, how her non-profit and consulting work has played a role in her current photography business, and her focus on conservation and advocacy for environmental issues, along with a lot more. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day, Sarah. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Yeah, it's a great day. It's beautiful and sunny here. We had a crazy snowy, dreary day yesterday, so beautiful, sunny in southwestern Colorado. Nice. We've we got mixed weather here. It's a bit cloudy. We've had a couple of showers of rain, but the sun's out at the moment, so... I don't think it knows what it wants to do. It would be probably an interesting day to be out taking photos somewhere if you got the the right spot. Talking about photography is just is second best. Almost. To almost actually being true. out and taking photos. That's right. <laughs> so why don't we talk a little bit about photography and yours in particular? Why photography? Why is it? What is it to you? Where does it hold a place in your life? I think it's pretty much the center of my life that pretty much everything I do the my spare time uh, is focused on photography, my hiking and outdoor activities, my career. Um, I'm married to a landscape photographer, essentially, like when we talk Can't about, <laughs> yeah, those casual dinner conversations, it's, oh, did you see blah, blah, blah's photo on Instagram and they're doing great work or somebody released a book. Isn't that exciting? So that's the dinner conversation in my household. <laughs> so the awesome. bottom line is it's pretty much nature and photography are pretty much the center of how I spend my time. Okay, great. Where did it all start? What, what drew you into landscape photography? I was a hiker and a backpacker originally. So I, that's how I came to being interested in nature. And then I think it's, my story is very similar to a lot of other photographers where they started taking a camera with them and then it turned into for a lot of people or a lot of us uh, an obsession. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The reason that I think I, I went from being casual about it to being very serious about it is that I am one of those people where my mind just never slows down, like constantly sure. going, constantly thinking, sometimes ruminating in an unpleasant way, sometimes just thinking about all a whole bunch of other positive ideas, but always constantly busy, like my mind never slows down. And with photography, I was at the time I started taking my camera out, doing more uh, photography in association with my hiking and backpacking. I was in a very stressful job. Um, I was co-directing a nonprofit organization here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school full-time. So full-time job, full-time graduate school in a marriage that wasn't working. And nature photography was pretty much the only time that my mind slowed down. I was in the present moment. I was enjoying my life. <laughs> so I think that's the reason that 
I started seeking it out more is because it like you, you hear a lot of people talk about how photography is a meditative practice. Yeah. And I absolutely have found that for myself. Okay. That experience of being present in the moment is is rare for me. And it's but it comes with photography. Awesome. So. Awesome. So in terms of that progress from hiker to photographer, somewhere along there, as you said, you started taking it seriously. Was that the moment where you started to say, okay, this isn't just documenting the pretty scenery that I'm seeing as I'm taking my walks. It's now something more artistic. Where did that sort of start to play on your mind and go, okay, this is art, not just documentary photography? Yeah, you it's that's so hard to say like I heard when listening some to some of your other episodes I heard you ask that same question to a few other people and I don't there's certainly not a moment where I can pinpoint the I can think of a couple of subjects like I was hiking in a, in Zion National Park one year and so Zion National Park is big sandstone towers yeah. and canyons and I was in a canyon and I saw a little tiny plant growing on one of the canyon walls and I photographed it in a way that I I had never seen this plant before. I had never seen it photographed in the way I photographed it. And it's so that was the first time I remember photography being some kind of interpretation. Like the eyes, like that caught my eye. Yeah. It yeah. I, I don't it doesn't seem like that subject has attracted anybody else because I've never seen a photograph of this plant. So I think that's probably the first time where I thought, oh, I might be seeing the world. I'm seeing something and then capturing it through my photography in a way that might be unique to me. Mm. So I don't think it was a firm, it was a very slow progression where I think those moments started taking over more of the documentary. So the teeter totter yeah. of where it's like I was looking for the big grand landscapes, going to the icons, and then slowly the more personal interpretations took over a little bit more. So I'd say it's for me, it's like a 20% icons, popular scenes, and 80% yep. things that interest me a little bit more now. So I, I still like going to the popular places. Oh, yeah. I, those scenes. The, the iconic places are iconic for a reason. And I don't think there's anything better than capturing your own interpretation of those sorts of things as well. Since you ask this question, do you have a particular, like a moment where you felt that transition or was yours like the teeter totter type situation too? I've been doing it for a long time and for a long time it wasn't very much about funnily enough it was it it actually started for me back in the when I had a point and shoot camera only I didn't have a DSLR well I, I had a an, an SLR film camera an old the Minolta XG1 that I'd had I'd bought in the 80s and I'd been using that to mostly document kids photos and family and that sort of thing and yeah a little bit of around the world career took over and so forth and it wasn't until I got into digital through those sort of happy snapper cameras I've got about five or six of them on the shelf behind me actually and that was where I started to go oh actually I could probably do something with some of these I'm now getting to a point in the career where I can get the time to go out. So that was where I really said, all right, I'm going to invest some money, go and buy myself a DSLR and, and start taking it a bit more seriously. So for me, probably around 2010, 2012, that, that, that was where it, it started for me. But 
obviously those I, I look back at those little small I don't know they're probably 10 or 11 megapixel <laughs> jpegs and I, I I guess it's funny to call them a, a form of art back from back then but that was what I had and that's what what I was using yeah it, it it is a it is an interesting progression though and I think it's one of the things one of the reasons why I like asking people about that is just understanding how they've developed their thinking around their photography in terms of that what role do you think personal expression plays in your photography and how do you infuse your own style and vision? Say you're going to one of those iconic places like Zion and you're there taking the the, the shots that everyone else has taken. How do you infuse your expression into that? I think that my probably the the way that it comes through my portfolio most would be in my plant photography because I approach photographing botanical subjects, I think, in a way that is fairly unique to me, that if you look at that portfolio, I think it says Sarah Marino. Um, I think my intimate landscapes and abstracts, I think that more people are doing that now than when I started doing that. So it doesn't feel as unique to me anymore, but it still feels like a much more personal interpretation of the landscape. Where if I'm walking through a canyon, I just did this in Zion National Park, like walking through a canyon with friends and seeing what we each individually stop at, uh, that's that spark of connection is going to be different for each of us. And it's like listening to that spark and then responding to it and photographing something in a way that's unique to me. Like I grace and elegance and harmony are ideas that come up a lot in my photography so that plays out in my composition style i often center compositions i choose things that are especially with my color photography calmer uh, more harmonious compositions i'm i don't want bold aggressive lines because that's not necessarily what i'm going for so patterns repetition calming i like cooler colors so i think all of those things that those visual preferences that they play out when I'm in the field and I'm looking for subjects that then align with some of those things. So I think that in most cases, I'm trying to take what I would consider expressive photographs, but I don't necessarily, I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not stopping at that icon because it's been photographed (laughs) by millions of people. I'm probably going to stop. I'm going to take the iconic photo. It very well might end up in my portfolio, but then I'm going to see what else is there And I'm going to explore extensively, both with my feet and with my eyes, and I'm going to find new things. I know that I'm going to find fresh ideas, even in popular places. Uh, So I think for me, I try to start with personal expression, and Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm more successful than others, but it, it it is a goal. I'd say that it is a goal of mine. Okay. So do you think it's important to have those goals in your photography around that I guess, looking for something that's a little bit different. Is that one of your main drivers? So one of my, the main, my main guiding principles in photography, especially when I'm teaching photography, is that there's no right way and there's no wrong way. Like that Mm. we can, there are lots of different solutions that work for different people. So my husband, I mentioned earlier, Ron Coscarosa is his name. He's also a nature photographer and he's, very successful at it, but he is not a goal oriented person at all. Like he does not care about, he does it purely for himself. He doesn't have any achievements that he wants to, he doesn't want to 
be win awards. He doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't care about how many people follow him on social media. Like he really does not care. Mm-hmm. And then I am more goal oriented where like, I want to publish, I'm working on my first book. Like I'm, I like teaching. I like getting my view of the world out there. Uh, yep. So I'm, I am more goal oriented. And I think that I need it for, that it helps with my motivation. Okay. Uh, so I don't think, I definitely don't think there's a right answer, but for me, having some of those goals in mind, uh, like public book publishing, like that gets me out. It gets me hiking, gets me exploring, trying new things, getting to new places because I want to create something better than what's maybe been created before. Like this book that I'm working on, I think it will probably be one of the best portfolios of Death Valley National Park that's ever been created. And that motivates me. Uh, Like I I want to explore a little bit more. I want even more unique views and that gets me out. It gets me hiking, gets me going to new places. Okay. So that, that goal orientation, does that manifest itself in planning your photography trips or your your shoots or are you more spontaneous and in the moment when you're in the field? I am entirely spontaneous. (laughs) I don't plan anything whatsoever, no matter where I'm going. The only planning that I do is where I'm going and where I'm camping and then looking at the weather. And the only time I have a composition in mind is if I'm returning to a place for an idea that I came up with on my own. Let's say I'm out hiking and I see something and think, oh, the light might be more interesting tomorrow or in the morning, Um, then I'll go back and focus on trying again. But that's the only planning I do. Uh, My view of the natural world is that I'm happy to be out and exploring and I know I'm going to find something that interests me. And if I don't, I'm going to practice and that's perfectly fine. Uh, And I think for my own work, I think planning sets expectations Mm -hmm. and expectations get in the way of seeing what's in front of you. Um, So if you go to a coastal location and uh, because it's going to be at a particular tide level and you're hoping for the sunset to be or the light to be in a particular way and then things start not aligning then you start feeling disappointed and frustrated and like over time i think that can manifest and and build into resentment i see that in a lot of people like the people who have a lot of expectations about their photography they become more resentful over time whereas for me i feel like if i just go with an open mind see what's there see what i can work with what i feel inspired by how i'm feeling that day that it just feels like a much more rewarding experience so it's again there's i don't feel like there's a right or wrong it's just I work best when it's entirely spontaneous. Okay, interesting, interesting. How about you? What is your planning uh, approach? I've, I, I do a little bit of planning sometimes. My wife and I recently bought a motorhome. We've been doing probably a, a bit of both, a bit of spontaneous stuff, but also some stuff revisiting places we've seen on the way somewhere or seen a signpost and said, well, that sounds interesting. Let's go and take a look down mm-hmm. and find out what's at the end of that road. Yeah, it's a bit of a mix for me. Sometimes I do, though, plan. In terms of the disappointment or dealing with that, I've learned that you just get the conditions you get, turn up and deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't get disappointed. I get disappointed if I can't find a composition and there are times when I struggle. And I guess I'm interested to talk a little bit about that with you as how do you deal with the situations where you're out in the field and you're searching about for that comp 
and it just doesn't seem to pop out. Nothing pops out and goes, hey, I'm interesting enough to take a shot of. <laughs> I think since you mentioned the motorhome piece, we bought a trailer mm -hmm. in 2014. So we've been, my husband, his job is fully remote. My job, my as photography, my photography job is fully remote. So we can go in our trailer and spend a lot of time in places. So we'll usually go to a place for a minimum of two to three weeks and sometimes as much as six to eight weeks in the same region. Yep. And I think that's one of the reasons. So I think getting our trailer has actually been the most transformational thing for my photography. And I think the way that it relates to your question is that I know there's gonna be a tomorrow. That's so right. if things yeah. aren't coming together today, and even if it's like glorious light and I've messed up, I'll still have another chance like that, that I shouldn't be hard on myself. If it's if it doesn't feel like it's coming together, maybe it's a sign that I just need to enjoy nature. I just need to spend time walking and exploring and appreciating my surroundings or it's time to practice or there are plants everywhere. So it's time to take out my macro lens. So I think that's usually how I approach those situations where if I had an idea in mind and it's just not coming together, it's like that trying to make lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. I try to put myself in the positive mindset of, I'm still gonna make the most out of this situation. I might not come away with any photos, but I might practice, I might have a creative breakthrough or I might just sit and enjoy being outside. So like, I don't try to put pressure on myself to perform. Or if I'm if things aren't coming together, I'm not going to chastise myself or be super disappointed because I just I think that leads you down a path that's not positive. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think way too many photographers spend more time trying to force an image than actually just sitting back and letting stuff happen. And I know, as you said, there's no right or wrong way of doing it, but I find that the images that I try to force anyway, I don't personally, they might be somebody else's cup of tea, but they're definitely not mine. And therefore not many other people are ever gonna see them. So. <laughs> I think the, the one time, so I work best when I'm able to be like slow and methodical mm -hmm. and when light is changing really fast or it's like a very unique set of conditions and I feel that pressure, I think that's the only time where I feel like I'm not enjoying this. Yeah, um, I'll yeah. still usually push through it and try to make the best of the situation. But like, I'm slow at composition. Like, I like taking my time and uh, having to move really quickly. Like, sometimes that's where I feel like I do sometimes fail. Mm. And I think I've just come to accept that's I'm trying to get better at being adaptable in those situations. But I'm also just generally pretty happy with my portfolio. So it's okay. Like it's yeah, okay yeah. that that I screwed up that one particularly great sunset. Like life goes on. There'll always be another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it yeah. is sometimes challenging when I have a husband who's there and he does well <laughs> under those yep. circumstances. Yep. So it just it shines a light on my inadequacies sometimes. <laughs> not that he's comparing at all. Uh, we do not have a competitive relationship at all when it comes to photography. But it's just in my mind, it's, oh, yeah, I could have done better. And yeah. so it's a, le a lesson I can think about changing in the future. Like, how can I be better next time? So I think that's a much more positive orientation to those 
days when things just don't come together. Another thing I see online, and I'd be interested if this is also a cultural thing in the Australian photography community, but there's this tendency for photographers to say, it's not even worth taking my camera out of the bag. (laughs) There's that, that very distinct cultural element. If the light is bad or conditions aren't coming together. And I find that to be like that kind of really negative attitude. It's take the camera out and practice and try something different. Unless it's crazy windy or really rainy or really unpleasant. Yeah, torrential rain is not fun. Yeah. Yeah, torrential rain is not fun. But like we were in Alaska and it rained every almost every single day and we still photographed every single day. So it's I feel like there's just like more positive, like fewer expectations, fewer plans, fewer expectations around light. If the light isn't what you expected, practice, try some new things, experiment, get out your longer lens. Yeah, that's where adaptability comes in. And I I know I've been striving recently in particular to where I've had limited opportunity in a location because I've had to go there during the day, middle of the day, simply because there was no chance that I could hang around till sunset or get there for for sunrise. But for me, the way I deal with that is I'll slap off the 10 stop and sometimes the three stop and the or the six stop on top of the 10 stop. So I'm using 13 or 16 stops a light and stopping down to F16 or F18 or even very occasionally F22 and just going for the longest exposure I can make. As long as there's something dynamic in the image, if it's a clear blue sky, it's a bit more challenging. But just doing that ultra long exposure in the middle of the day is something that it's just something a little bit different and something that not many people, as you say, yeah, it is. I don't know if it's prevalent, but there's. I have heard that from photographers in the past where they say, the light's not right, I'm not going to bother. And you're just cutting off opportunities to be explore and be expressive in your photography. And like the example that you shared, like doing that over time, you can have a complete portfolio of images from that kind of experience. Or if you are willing to get out in flatter light and photograph a different type of subject, you're adding, you could add more diversity to your portfolio, which I think for me, I, when I'm looking through photography portfolios, if I see somebody who has grand landscapes, intimate landscapes, abstractions, portraits of plants and trees, the seascapes, like they're the people who have the more diverse portfolios to me, like their work generally resonates more with me than like the people who are photographing the the best scenes under the best light. Looking through a portfolio of 50 photos that are just like that, it's okay, great but it's just repetitive so i actually like i for myself again no right and wrong but for myself i think i'm happier with my portfolio when it includes more diversity so those days where it's yeah it's not great for grand landscapes might be great for other things so i I brought us off on a a tangent i don't even know where we started but (laughs) (laughs) doesn't matter it's a a (laughs) free-flowing podcast we can start and end wherever we like You mentioned going out with friends and obviously your husband being a photographer. Do you prefer to be with other people when you're photographing or do you prefer to be alone? I love to be around the campfire at night with the other people. Like I absolutely love spending time with other photographers. The 
talking about photography, talking about photographs, talking about the creative process. Like I absolutely love that aspect of being part of the community. I much prefer to take photos on my own. Okay. They're Ron, so husband Ron, he and I have a very good way of, we have very similar interests and we hike at a fairly similar speed. So we can hike together and then we can go do our own thing and then get back cool. together and then hike. So that works really well. Um, Anna Morgan is what she's a, she lives in Canada. She's a very talented photographer. She's another person that I photographed with on extended trips twice now. And we work super well together. We can go to a place, we can chat and then go do our own thing and then chat and do our own thing. And it feels like it flows very well. And I can think of a couple of other friends where I've been able to do that with, but that's, I think, the, ex the exception. Mm -hmm. I much prefer being able to just focus on the weird thing that attracted me with no judgment, no need to explain, to say this bizarre rock on the ground that I, I want to stop, take my camera out of the bag, set up my tripod and spend a half an hour photographing it. And I don't want to have to explain that to anyone. Yeah. I think that's probably the reason. And because like I mentioned that, like, I like the social aspect. It's sometimes hard to say, I don't want to talk. I want to photograph. So it's just easier if that's all reserved for the campfire in the yeah. evening yeah. or dinner, instead of trying to make that camaraderie work with the actual act of photographing. Yeah. I, I, I like that way of thinking. I know, I know people that do like to be with other people when they're out shooting, but I find it a distraction sometimes. And I also feel time pressure. Is that something that you feel if there's other people around, you know, particularly if you're hiking to a particular spot and you go, okay, I want to spend half an hour looking at this rock. Everyone <laughs> else is sitting there coming. Come on, Sarah. Yeah, let's go. I think it, <laughs> it's just the, like, I don't want to have to negotiate when I'm yeah. out photographing. I don't want to have, or I don't want to have to justify or I don't want to have to feel like I'm moving past an opportunity that I otherwise would stop at. Yeah. So there are definitely cases where because we're in a place with other people and I want to spend time with them, I want to build that relationship. I'm totally happy going out a couple of times and knowing that the purpose of going out with that person is primarily building the relationship yeah. and then the photography is secondary. And I think if I put my if I start with that frame of reference, that it's better because then I don't feel the tension over the photography. And then I know, again, because we stay in places for longer periods of time, I know that then I'm going to be able to just go out a couple days later by myself and it'll be, it'll all be perfectly fine. So I think it's just that mindset, like going into it when you're hanging out with other photographers, just, I know that my photography is not, it's probably, the results aren't probably going to be as good. The process isn't going to be quite as as good. The one thing I will say, though, for women photograph women photographers, the safety aspect where it's just a lot of women are nervous about being outside by themselves, yep. Uh, yep. that I think that is a distinct advantage that male photographers have, because I think they just don't generally this is such a generalization. Um, but just knowing a lot of male photographers who are totally happy to go out by themselves go hiking by themselves. They don't necessarily think about their personal safety to the same degree, where most of the women photographers that I know, they do think about it. And some of them use it as a decision-making factor. Like, I'm not going to go do that if I'm not with somebody else. Yeah. Uh, I think that gender 
does play a pretty big role in this and where sometimes women, because of how they feel about being by themselves, they naturally gravitate towards being with other people. And, and I definitely did that when I was first starting out because I wasn't comfortable being outside by myself. Yeah, I, it's unfortunately, that's the case. That's the way people have to be. But yeah, it, it's something I've spoken to a few other female photographers about that safety aspect and being out and about on your own, particularly pre-dawn or something like that can be quite daunting. And I get it. I've got three daughters and I know we've had the chats <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you add in having $15,000 of equipment. Yeah, that's it too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's not that only are you by yourself in pre-dawn or after sunset, but you're also carrying a lot of valuable equipment. Mm. So it's just that combination of things. So I, and I've spent time with other friends, female friends in the field, because I know that for them, the safety aspect is definitely a consideration and they don't have a husband who's a full-time photographer, who's a, a landscape photographer too. So I guess in that sense, I'm very lucky because I do have that built in. I still go out by myself, especially in places that I'm familiar with. I go out and hike on my own. I photograph on my own, but generally if I want somebody to be there, I have somebody and a lot of women photographers don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move on to talking a little bit about the environment. Obviously, that's a big part of the expression that you're putting out there around how beautiful the world is. How do you balance that desire to capture something that's amazing and incredible with the need to respect and minimise your impact on the natural environment? I think the first thing to mention is that I was one of the co-founders of the Nature First Alliance for Responsible yeah. Photography here in the U.S. So actually upstairs in my house is where we first started working on that as a group together. I think that it's something that's top of mind. So my own field practices, I'm very conscious of my impact and I am never going to like traipse through a field of wildflowers without a second thought or I'm not going to walk over biological soil crust in the Southwest desert. So I'm always thinking about my own actions and mm -hmm. um, that I don't want to damage a landscape for my own photography. I think the thing that I'm increasingly seeing with my own work is first, how can I be more careful about how I communicate about my photography so that I'm not drawing people to certain locations that I'm encouraging other people to think about these things as well. And then just generally, I'm trying to infuse more conservation work in my photography generally. I think I went from wanting to, to encourage other photographers to be responsible stewards of the places that we visit mm -hmm. to now being more active and wanting to actually help advance some conservation initiatives here in the United States. So I, I think it's conservation photography, at least in the U.S., is thought of as like people who are going to the ends of the earth and who want to help save polar bears and other sure, sure. like majestic creatures. And I'm trying to figure out like with my work that's mostly focused in national parks and uh, US, public lands in the US, like how, so in more plain subjects, it's hilarious thinking that kind of US national parks are more pedestrian, but like how can I infuse 
more of that conservation focus in my work. And I'm, I still don't have an answer. Like this book project that I mentioned, I'm a, I've added a conservation chapter. I'm going to do work. Like there are a couple of threatened landscapes that are right outside the border of the Nas Death Valley National Park. So I'm doing some photography projects in those threatened places. And I'm going to include a, a conservation message in that book project. So it's like my first approach in trying to actually do more have more of an advocacy instead of an I think the bottom line is I've always been interested in the education piece educating other photographers about leave no trace and nature first and those sorts of things and now I think I want to move more towards using my photography for some sort of advocacy I don't see myself as an activist but some sort of advocacy more mission-oriented advocacy sure sure I think there's a few things starting up i know we're here i've actually been asked to sit on a committee around those sorts of things and how photographers can actually be more proactive in their advocacy and in, in getting involved in fostering land care projects and so forth and for me it's a really important issue that we need to look at because i think there's a lot of threats other than just climate change going on, but climate change is that primary one that I think everyone's got to take a really strong, hard look at themselves. The challenges obviously are getting the corporate world involved in that and communicating to that corporate world how to get that message across to the boardrooms because that's really where the change is going to get made, I think, in at least in the, the, the Western world anyway. Or even like in the United States, national parks, the National yeah. Park Service, they're a very underfunded agency. It's slow moving in some ways. It just feels like they're still operating, say, 15 years ago in terms of some of the land use issues. Yeah. And just like putting a little tiny sign on a trail that's, that says, pack out your trash. That's just not enough anymore in no. some places. No. So it feels like the management philosophies for visitation and other things in a lot of popular places here just also seem out of step with reality and that there's so much opportunity for some larger movement around like responsible visitation even so mm -hmm. climate change feels so massive so yeah it's, it's like, the hardest it's, not to crack yeah exactly like policy in the united states it's like this is a worldwide problem like you can vote for politically or like the right politicians in the United States, and it's still not going to solve much. But so it's so that's no such a massive here. issue. But even just like the the what I'm talking about, just better visitor education, it seems like that's almost an intractable problem in some yeah. ways. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy conversation for some people to have, I think. And it, it's going to be interesting, I think, in terms of using photography as a tool for education and advocacy because i think there's a number of people that in the photography community at least here the in australia i know that there's quite a few that are really passionate about making things happen and making steps to get people educated and i think there's so much that that photographers can do using their social media influence to actually help out with that. I think that in the US, the term conservation photographer, it's, it's such a laden term. There are so many gatekeepers. 
Yeah. That it's if you're you have to be focused to be considered a conservation photographer like that identity, you have to be focused on projects that just feel so inaccessible for the average photographer. So it, I think that's actually something that I'd like to see change more, at least in Definitely. the United States, is yeah. just that the more people can see themselves as being a conservation photographer, that identity is more accessible and that there are more tangible ways to think, okay, so I'm not traveling to polar regions and photographing uh, like diminishing sea ice, but I'm going to this local nature preserve and talking about why biodiversity is important and helping people see how they can plant native plants in their own gardens and help pollinators. Like that, yeah. that's yeah. a role that a lot of photographers could play. Uh, like just doing local projects around biodiversity and education around uh, like naturalists. I, actually, the term naturalist, I think, means something different in the United States than it does in Australia. I think you might be confusing it with naturist. A naturist and, is definitely something different, but a naturalist, okay. I think, is the same. Okay, because I, I said naturalist to another Australian and they're like, what do you mean? They might have misheard <laughs> so, you, I think. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> got, got us a little off track there. But I think just generally that it would be a very positive movement if the term conservation photographer felt more accessible and that photographers could see themselves doing smaller local projects and just feeling like they could move smaller things forward and still have that identity. That would be a really positive transformation. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. In terms of how you look at your photography in relation to the, the the landscape and the natural environment. Obviously, bringing out that natural look is a big part of what you're doing. How do you work towards making your photos look as natural as possible? So I think that th th this is another place where there's no right or wrong. So my practices are just I'm not, yeah, I'm not, but, totally not saying it's, it's right or wrong. Yeah. So the reason that I'm driven to photograph is that I like the experience of being outside. And when everything comes together, that is thrilling. And it happens so infrequently that I keep that, that pursuit keeps me getting outside because it's like chasing mm -hmm. that everything coming together. So if I'm doing a lot of work, in post-processing that takes a lot of that it would just take away the reason that i do this so even though i do i think i want my photos to look natural and realistic but then i also still use post like modern processing techniques so i'm certainly not saying my photos are straight out of camera at all but i think they are a realistic i, I, I don't think straight out of camera is the right way to look at photography anyway that, yeah that's <laughs> i would agree like <laughs> okay agree. i'm looking at the negative which is okay but it's <laughs> if, if you just did a straight print of a negative without adjusting contrast without mm -hmm. adjusting color and tone and all those sorts of things then you're not making the image look as good as it could be yeah, and you're if you're just taking a flat raw file, that's not what it looked like either. So I generally feel like doing things like a lot of compositing or a lot of cleanup or any of that or really any compositing. So I don't do any I don't drop in any skies. I don't do I don't do a lot of warping to make things to make lines work better because the drive for me is getting it right, like finding the scene that works out in the yep. natural world. Mm. Uh, so I think that's the main driver is 
my processing flows from my motivation and that that so for people that really like tinkering that they really like understanding digital tools they like seeing how far they can push something I have none of those things motivate me whatsoever. It's having things come together. So that's why I I think that my processing habits and how I I present my photography, it flows from my main motivations for being outside. I think it's as simple as that. Okay. Your decision to go professional choose you or did you choose it? It chose me, but I'm feeling better about it. So I worked in the nonprofit sector in the United States here in Colorado for 12-ish years. I worked in organizations and then I developed my own consulting business and had clients all across the state. And then my husband and I decided to move to a little tiny town in southwestern Colorado that has 900 people. So I went from a very urban, my practice was based in Denver, Colorado, so a very vibrant nonprofit community to this little tiny town. So I would be working with totally different clients on totally different projects. And I, I liked working on the big strategic multi-organization projects that I was doing previously. I didn't want to just do like a board retreat for a tiny little nonprofit board. Uh, I did, and I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to have to travel for all that work. So I was starting to get really burned out on like my old career just wasn't clicking quite like it used to. So I'm really glad we moved, but it also meant that career was less viable. So I decided to make the transition in January of 2020, which was the worst possible timing ever because time to start it's like, a business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I had, I had published eBooks and I had casually taught workshops and had some video tutorials. So I wasn't like, just turning off the light switch for the consulting business and turning on the light switch for the photography business. It was like that teeter totter analogy I used earlier. Like I was just wrapping up all the consulting and going full time into photography. So it wasn't like a super rapid transition, but I had a whole line of lineup of workshops prepared for 2020 and then we couldn't have workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just like January 2020, my dad passed away. COVID happened, my business fell apart. I didn't have that old identity of my nonprofit work. And it's like, why am I doing this? This feels like the the worst possible decision. And now a couple of years later, I'm feeling like actually I'm really enjoying it. It doesn't look at anything like what I thought it would look like. I feel like I was much better at consulting than I am at being a full-time photographer. Okay. Uh, so I have all this small business experience and all I did was strategy and business planning work with nonprofits. So I have all of those skills, which a lot of people don't, but it feels lonely. Like I miss working with people more closely. Mm. Uh, like it's very competitive. This field is much more competitive than yep. I was used to a much more collaborative type of working with people. And there's just like a kind of weird undercurrent of competitiveness in a lot of relationships that I didn't expect and I don't quite know how to navigate sometimes. So the the answer to your question is it chose me because we moved, but now I think I'm in the place where it's working. I'm figuring it out. Okay. So the teeter-totter is getting into some sort of balance now. Yeah, it is. I'm figuring it out. (laughs) You mentioned having the small business skills and it's one thing that I'm trying to do in this sort of area of the podcast in communicating to people that might be thinking about starting out or just starting out themselves in that business. 
I think personally, it's one of the most important set of skills that you can have is understanding a little bit about your business plan, having a business plan, etc. How important was that to you in setting up your business? Oh, I think it's been so critical. If you look at my background, so I did, I essentially did strategic planning and business planning and some other things with nonprofit organizations. So even though they were mission-driven organizations, they were still businesses. Like I know how to read financial statements. I know how to put together a budget. I understand cash flow statements. Um, I know how to write grants. Like I just wrote a grant for my book project. So that's something I have that skill like in my back pocket. As part of my graduate school program, I wrote a lot. As part of my consulting business, I wrote a lot as well. And one, so now I'm more known for my writing skills as part of my photography business. So it's like all these skills that I had as part of my consulting work and my nonprofit work are the reason that I think I'm achieving some success. It's not my photography. I think my photography is part of it. You have to be a competent photographer, but you have to know like how to do financial projections and understand return on investment. If you're investing a ton of time in something and it's not really returning an investment in terms of income now, and it doesn't have the prospect to do it in the future, that might not be the best way to spend your time. Uh, Or like thinking about how to build partnerships with people, building a network, marketing, how to develop a newsletter list, how to set up your own website. It's like all those things are really important skills Mm. that are in, I think more, if you want to be a full-time photographer, those skills are more important in a lot of ways than the photography portfolio. I've I've seen plenty of mediocre photographers be successful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. In, in terms of commercial success. One, one of the things that you, you, you mentioned there was the time. A lot of people don't understand that running your own business basically starts to consume pretty much all of your time from when you wake up to when you go to bed. Is that the case for you? I try to be reasonable. I like working though. Like it, so I don't see it as, I don't feel like I'm in my old job, I was a workaholic. I worked a lot and it really damaged my personal life and mm-hmm. had all sorts of other negative effects. In this business, I work a lot, but that also includes being outside a lot. Yeah, so right. it's a, I consider my time in the field to be work too. Yeah. Um, so I think it's still, I'm still working a lot, but I'm just doing it in a little bit healthier way. But yes, so I just refreshed our website and Ron, who's a software developer. So he works with a whole team of people where somebody does the front end work, somebody does the back end work. There's a quality, a QA person, the person who does the testing to make sure things are working. There's the, there are all these people that make up a software engineering team. And we, we were joking when I was redoing the website stuff, it's like that I'm every single one of those people and I have no technical background whatsoever. Yeah. So it's, you have to be, you have to be very versatile. Every day is going to look different. You have to be the finance person, the marketing person, the website person, the communication person, the photography person, the person who answers the emails. Um, yeah. And if you're uncomfortable with that role, <laughs> then that's another place where my nonprofit experience prepared me because like when in the nonprofit world, you're the person, even if you're the co-director of the organization, you're still setting up the table at the conference, like making sure the tablecloth looks nice and there are enough brochures stacked up for when the conference opens. 
So it's that was really good preparation of you're schlepping a lot of stuff, you're doing a lot of the grunt work, and you're doing a lot of the high level strategic thinking. And that's exactly what I'm doing every day in this business. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of extraneous non-photography things that they need to do. And oh, for sure. people think, oh yeah, I'll just set up a website and do my photography and that's it. But unless you're the marketing person and the finance person and all those other people in, mm -hmm. all, all wrapped up in one, it's, it's very challenging to get things going. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about that they had suggested a business idea to me, like how they were going to position their photography business. And I suggested, uh, I think you need to take a class on generating passive income and email marketing and three or four classes because this person doesn't have any business background. And they said in response, that just feels so overwhelming. I don't think that I can, I don't even know how I would get all that done. It's, maybe that's a good answer is that maybe yeah, this isn't. That's the where you need you. to start thinking about, okay, do I put the effort into that or do I keep it as a side hustle slash hobby mm -hmm. slash whatever it is you want to call it? Yeah, because unless you have money to pay for people like to hire a marketing assistant, which in five years you might have the money to do that. Sure, but when sure. you're starting out, you probably won't. So it'll be you. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> One of the things that a lot of people struggle with is pricing. Do you use that business experience to work your pricing? Do you have a formula? Do you how, how do you think about your pricing for your work? I mostly focus on digital or on photography education. So that's going to be things like uh, doing ebooks, video tutorials, uh, speaking at conferences, doing presentations to various groups, like online presentations and doing in the field workshops. So I generally think of myself as kind of the upper end of the middle tier is where I would okay. put my pricing. Because I also think of my brand as that. I'm not providing a premium experience, but if you're going to go on a workshop with me, it's going to be well-planned. I'm going to think through the itinerary. I'm going to be present. I'm giving you a high quality experience. I think it's the same with our ebooks, our other video tutorials. There is a lot of junk out there, but if you buy something from me, it's going to be high quality. So that means my pricing is going to be a little bit higher, but it's not going to be a premium. Yeah. I think that's that. I think the business background probably helps me in assessing the return on investment a little bit better. I'm able to say using this, if I use this hour in this way, it means I can't use it in a different way. Yep. And the, being a little bit better about saying no, about being strategic and making decisions about how I spend my time. Mm -hmm. um, I think like doing things I don't enjoy because I know they'll pay off down the line. Yeah, I think yeah. those are some of the, that background I think helps with those decisions. Tell me a little bit about what people could expect on a Sarah Marino workshop. I have been taking a little bit of a hiatus from teaching in person to work on this book project, but I'm hoping that in 2025, I'll be offering more workshops. Um, I think that, that the main thing that I want to communicate in an educational experience is to be thinking differently about photography. I think a lot of the things that people learn when they're getting started all narrow people's mindset. So it's like there's good light and bad light. There's good compositions, bad compositions. Yep. There are the good places and the bad places. 
And I think people who spend time in the field with me walk away realizing that if I expand my mindset, I'll see a lot more opportunities. I think being in the field with me also helps people learn to be more observant. They build their naturalist skills. We usually work through almost the entire day and we photograph it depending on the location. But in a lot of cases, we're looking for opportunities throughout the day. So becoming a more versatile photographer, seeing opportunities from the grand landscape to smaller scenes. Uh, So it's just generally, I think about expanding your view of photography and and opportunities. Uh, So the expansive mindset is something I talk about a lot that we're looking for ways to expand our opportunities, not limit them. So the whole good light, bad light thing, like I don't wanna hear it. There are different opportunities related to light and we're gonna figure out based on the light, what could we be doing? I think some of those things are, some of my, the the things that, that are a little bit different about how I teach. Sure. In terms of where you like to shoot, do you have a favourite spot? Is there somewhere that just keeps calling you back that you haven't finished shooting? <laughs> I think every place is my favourite spot. I think sure. that's the... <laughs> the I, I, I enjoy every landscape that I visit and I want to go back to all of them. The place that calls me back the most has been Death Valley, which I mm. think is so surprising because... Before I took up photography, my parents bought me a book on Death Valley and I said, I'm never going to a place called Death Valley. And now I've spent <laughs> Doesn't sound- many months there. <laughs> it's just, it's this very sparse, surreal landscape. But once you start looking deeper, the desert plants are amazing. The ecosystems, it ranges from below sea level to 11,000 plus feet. So you have dramatic changes in the ecosystems at different elevations. Uh, the the landscape is so diverse in terms of subject matter the light in the desert is just magical around twilight like early twilight late twilight um so death valley is the place i keep going back to a lot Uh, i also hope that after i'm finished with this death valley project that i'll do a zion national park book and then i think i'm ready i'm we've been going back to a lot of places i think in part because of covid like it yep. was just easy to go back to familiar places. I think I'd just like to start mixing in some fresh places because I like we went to Alaska for the first time uh, in August and it just felt so exciting to be doing something that I had wanted to do for so long. Mm-hmm. I'd also, I'm, I find a lot of appealing. I would just really liked being at that high latitude. So doing more things at higher latitudes, visiting the landscapes. I know Australia is a massive country, but visiting a, one or two places, New There's Zealand. Plenty, plenty of variation here. <laughs> yeah, just not, I don't want to be the world traveler that's all, all going, just checking places off the list. Yeah. Um, but yeah. starting to, now that COVID is, like the travel has opened back up again, just doing a little bit more uh, fresh stuff. Hmm. What is on your bucket list? It's like all the places. <laughs> I think I would probably say northern latitudes in Canada. So whether that's Alaska is obviously in the US, but like the Yukon or other higher latitudes, Svalbard, Namibia and Patagonia and New Zealand and Japan. Okay. It's, I could just keep on adding the places. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm the same. It's a very long list and it'll never end. <laughs> yeah. What are yours? What are a couple of yours? Uh, probably South Island and New Zealand is probably high on the list, but I'd also love to go to all of the places you mentioned. Patagonia is mm-hmm. definitely up there. I'd love to go to Antarctica. 
there's a little island in between the bottom of Australia or the southern part of Australia and Antarctica called Macquarie Island. Usually you've got to be, you, you can only go there as part of a scientific expedition, but it's largely untouched despite the fact that it did have infestations of rats and whatever at, at one time. They've actually cleaned all of that up. And the just the environment there, really, that southern ocean, it's high latitude, very cold at winter and just very remote. And that, that kind of little tiny dot on the map with penguins and seals and sea lions and elephant seals and all the rest of that sort of thing it's just yeah that sounds fantastic yeah it just sounds like somewhere that I could spend a lot of time <laughs> do you feel like you could figure out a way to get affiliated with I'm working those... on it <laughs> yeah good luck <laughs> yeah working on it but I don't know I don't know if I'll, I'll ever get there but mm -hmm. we'll keep trying <laughs> plugging away yeah <laughs> Do you think where you live or where you shoot has influenced how you shoot? Obviously, it'll influence what you shoot, but I'm interested in the techniques that you're using to capture the landscape. Has the landscape itself informed those techniques? I think I pretty much have a pretty similar, like I'm always going to exclusion as my main compositional approach. My 100 to 500 lens is the thing that's on my camera most. Yep. Uh, I think the thing that's influenced me most is being able to stay in places for longer. That's more uh, influenced my work in the sense that I have the time to explore and I have the time mm -hmm. to slow down. And because of those things, I work with subjects that I might not, if I'm just going to a place for a week, I'm not necessarily going to spend an entire three day period just photographing plants, which is something yep. that I've done a lot more like in Death Valley. Uh, I last year and the year before I spent many days just photographing desert plants, because I really wanted to build a portfolio of those subjects. And that's something that if I was just there for a week, I probably I might spend an hour doing that, but I'm certainly not going to spend multiple days. So I think it's more like I use a very similar approach to pretty much any landscape I visit. Uh, so it's the staying places longer. It's like the yeah. slowing down. Okay. What's your most memorable photography moment? Oh my goodness. The most recent, this is another one. It's like the, the most recent place is the favorite place. Like we watched bears and stellar sea lions eating spawning salmon in Alaska. And like when the, that was the first time I had ever seen a sea lion eat a salmon, um, catches the salmon and it's just like slapping it violently against the surface of the water. And at first I just recoiled in horror, like at the violence that I was witnessing. And then by the end of the, we had, we photographed them for three or four hours. And by the end, it's, yeah, I wanted to catch another one. And like that action is so thrilling and watching you could, as they would bite them, like you could, would see the eggs come out and like, just like that intensity of watching this process and then learning about Pacific salmon and their spawning cycle. And then watching bears, we watched three black bears for hours eating this, eating salmon. And it was just like, so intense and it was the rain was crazy so there was that aspect and there were so many birds around that there was this constant cacophony so it was just 
when I'm photographing a plant in the desert, there's not quite that intense swirl of the atmosphere. So that was particularly memorable. And I'm not a wildlife photographer. And I it's a it's a very different style of photography, that that fast shutter speed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was so much fun. I had I spent the summer preparing. Like I I got all my camera settings dialed in. I spent a lot of time photographing birds locally. So I was ready and I feel like I developed a a decent portfolio, not great. I'm not saying it's great by any means, but it was good enough to put on my website. I think I had 40 some wildlife photos from that time in Alaska. So it was exciting to try something new and the intensity of that experience, that was just particularly memorable because it was just so action oriented and different than what I usually do. What about horror stories? Have you had any shocking moments? Like we've ha- we've done stupid things like getting stuck on a playa out in the middle of nowhere in zero degree freezing weather. So that was dumb, like lightning storms where we thought we were looking at a storm off in the distance when in fact the storm was the, that we were hearing was coming over us, <laughs> like terrifying, absolutely terrifying. We ran back, we were at the Grand Canyon in a, at a backcountry overlook ran back to the car, got in the car and a lightning strike, like hit 30 feet away from the car, like seeing it on the ground. So like that kind of thing, I don't have any great, like run of the mill experiences. If you spend out time outside, you're going to have the same experiences that I do. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'd like to talk a little bit about the how. Do you come home from a shoot put the uh, card straight in the computer and get into editing or are you one to leave it for a bit? Oh, I have the most massive back- backlog of photos ever and it is this existential dread around it. I think that up until the last couple of years, I didn't have very much confidence in my processing skills or I think I just wasn't, I didn't have a lot of confidence. And now I think I've gotten to the point where I do feel good about my work. So I'm working through it more proactively. So no, I do not come home and stick the card in and process. My Ron does. He comes home, he processes his photos in a couple of weeks, puts them online and moves on. Whereas I have this massive burden on my shoulders of thousands of files that I've never even looked at. And wow just adding to the backlog. So yeah, this is actually like the sorest point for me with my photography is this dynamic of having years of unprocessed photos and not quite knowing. I I want some of my best work is in those files, but there are so many of them that it's like unearthing them is this impossible task. So I'm trying to get through 2023. That's my my current plan. Fair enough. (laughs) <laughs> what does your processing look like? Are you spending hours, minutes, days on images? or? I would generally say that I probably spend anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes on a photo. I'm very detail-oriented with my processing. I start with the basics in Lightroom, and then I do most of the work in Photoshop. Hmm. For things like simple plant photos, that might just include a little bit of cloning, and some brightening, a little bit of contrast and color adjustments, and then I'm done. For my black and white work, where I'm doing a lot more, it's that's much more creative interpretation, where I'm doing a lot of working on contrast in very specific areas, doing a lot of dodging and burning. Sometimes those with those, I'll set them aside and then come back because often it's, oof, 
I took that a little too far. So with my color work, I generally feel a little bit more confident the first time around. Mm. Usually with my black and white work in ground landscapes, I have to come back. I'll let it sit. I'll come back, do more adjustments. So mm, cool. like pretty standardized process. No fancy. I use very basic tools in Photoshop. Sounds good. In terms of the routine when you're out in the field, is there anything that you, other than obviously what you're shooting, is there anything that you might do that's a little bit different to someone else that, that you think? I think in spending a lot of time teaching photography, I spend a lot more time observing my surroundings than I think a lot of nature photographers do, where it's, especially with teaching, like you'll, you'll, I'll take a group to a specific spot and people have a, an idea about that, what that spot is about. And then they'll latch on to that idea and then stick to that idea. Whereas I think I like being out a lot longer than a lot of photographers. Like I like arriving really early and yep. staying till the very last light and then photographing through that entire experience. So moving around a lot, exploring a lot, trying a lot of different things. Um, observing really closely and spending time with both details and grander things. Uh, so I think that's probably, if I were to compare myself to my experience with just general groups of photographers, I think I'm, my observation skills are probably the thing that, that sets me apart a little bit. And then that plays out in my portfolio just because I see things that are a little either weird or like I thought every scummy pond I see, I stop and look at, and I have an entire portfolio of things floating in scummy ponds that turn into kind of cool photographs. Uh, whereas a lot of people would be like, that's a weird, bizarre subject. Or if I pass a dead log on the ground, I'm looking to see if there are any interesting patterns that with a macro lens, it's like the tiny, but yep. you might have a crazy little pattern. Just being very observant. And I'm also trying to inc increase my knowledge about the places I'm visiting. And that knowledge, I think, feeds into photographic opportunities in a way that I think more photographers could benefit from. What does success in your photography look like for you? That's a hard question. I think just being happy with my work, like that I've, I'm at the point where I'm proud of my portfolio. That feels like success. Um, I also feel that I've provided advice to some photographers that has changed the way they practice okay. and brought them hap more happiness in their photography and helped them see the world in a little bit different way. And I think that feels very encouraging. I hope if you talk to me in five years that I could say here are a couple of conservation projects I've worked on, that would be more of so I feel like I'm happy with where I'm at now and I've achieved that sort of success with my portfolio. I think I just want my photography to mean a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the, I'm satisfied with my current definition of success, but I want that definition to look a little different in the future. Have you ever hit a creative wall? And if so, have you got any strategies for getting over it, around it, under it? No, I don't. I have not really hit a creative wall ever. And I think it's partially because I just don't have a lot of expectations for my work and I'm just happy to be outside. And if I have a trip where I feel like things just didn't quite come together, just go back out and try again. So I don't have a lot of 
advice because I haven't really necessarily experienced it myself that I, I personally find that just getting outside is the heart is the, the piece that's like, once I'm outside, I feel good about things. So I think that's, I don't know that it's good advice, but I think that would be what my advice would be is if you're feeling some kind of creative block or you're feeling bored with your work, try something fresh, try some different subjects, try to work with different light, like just like stretching your skills and trying new things, maybe go to a fresh place that all of those things I think would help me. I don't know that they would necessarily help other people though. Yeah. yeah. I, I quite frankly think they would. Uh, they, it, it, it's advice that a, a lot of people need, I think, sometimes when they're in that creative rut of doing the same old and they're starting to get, this is the same old, I need mm -hmm. to do something different. And doing something different is exactly what you need to do. And it might not even be photography related in some cases. Yeah, exactly. Like putting down the camera is okay sometimes. Mm, definitely. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing photography right now? I think AI is unquestionably the biggest challenge. It, I think it could be positive in the sense that people who are motivated, like the people who just want something to show on social media that looks impressive, that they might just go, they might not need to go outside anymore. And if that resulted in less pressure from influencers on public lands, I think that would be a positive not a thing. Bad thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that the fact that all of these AI models are trained on the creative outputs of photographers without any compensation whatsoever and no real plan for com compensating photographers, that seems like such a flaw in the legal system around you're creating, you're using the creative outputs of, of people and not having any compensation built in not having any credit built in the fact that you can type in or at least you could initially i think that some of these image generators have pulled back on this but create a photo in the style of alex noriega like that's stealing his intellectual property yeah. and yeah. then selling like selling tutorials on how to do that i just think that's wrong but it seems to be becoming more common so i think that there are so many things related to AI that I think will just dramatically change photography, but I really hope that it will still mean that there's a place for authenticity, that something being created by a human is still exciting and that even though it's not as perfect or as polished, mm -hmm. it's more interesting because it was created through a human endeavor and there are flaws and there's, uh, there's something infused, that person has infused something that's part of themselves in this work. Yeah. Um, it's like film photography. There's a, a couple of photographers that I really respect here in the US are working with film. And like that maybe digital photography will just be the film equivalent of in 10 years. That yeah. it's seen as a little bit anachronistic, but there's still a really vibrant community doing it. Yep. yep. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will make real photography, AI will make real photography a little bit more valuable. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed, but I'm not going to hold my breath for that. <laughs> it seems like people working at the lower end of the spectrum are just, it's not great. If, you, no. if you're a logo designer doing kind of generic logo design, your job is 
it is at risk. If you're a high-end graphic designer doing very creative work, then you, there's probably a place for you in the AI-dominated future. Yeah. Um, probably same with photography. If you're just doing really bland stock photography, the the yeah, the, like I I see commercial product photography and fashion photography at risk simply because corporations that are buying those services now are seeing AI as a cost-saving measure and they will take whatever cost-saving measures they can as long as the quality is okay enough for them to use. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe some of the higher-end brands that need high higher-quality stuff, but I don't see it impacting things like real estate photography, for example. There's no mm -hmm. point using like you have to be there. You've got to be in that room to take mm -hmm. that shot. No, no matter how bad or how good the the house actually looks, and, and you've got to make it look as good as you can. And the same for event photography, weddings, etc. Nobody's going to want an AI version of their wedding, I don't think. No, no one normal anyway. <laughs> and with nature photography, like a huge for a lot of us. The reason is that you're outside. You're exactly. experiencing yeah, that this. experience. Like the, the typing a prompt into a yeah. large language model. I'd rather get on a boat and cruise. Yeah. Around. So yeah. it's like I can be excited about the possibilities of if I'd love to be able to load a blog post, or I could do this right now, load a blog post in Chat GPT, ask it if there are any ways that I can improve it from a grammatical standpoint. It points out a few things. I improve it. That's it's helpful having a little a writing like oh, yeah, an editor sure. there. Sure. I think some people are taking it way too far though, and you can tell that they're using AI to write their things, and it looks ridiculous. But yeah. generally, there are some pros that I'm excited about, and then it seems like there are some huge, really bad cons that I guess, like at least in the United States, from a legal perspective, just will need to be worked out. Yeah. Yeah. What about the future of photography? Where do you see it going? Of nature photography in particular? Yeah. Or I I don't spend that much time thinking about the big picture for the nature photography world. I think the main things, that the, at least I see in the US, that are going to be continual problems is if public land usage continues on the trajectory that it's continuing, land managers are going to continue cracking down on photographers because we as a community sometimes behave badly yep. and that's going to that's going to make certain places less and less accessible mm. and that means that some of the most incredible places are going to they already are like some of the great slot canyons around page like they don't even allow photographers with tripods anymore so it's just closing off some of those opportunities to experience some of the most majestic places, like not being able to just have a quiet experience in places that I think those are some of the negatives that the pressure on public lands is going to mean that photographers, there will be cra more crackdowns on photographers, yeah, right. especially workshops and like permits will be necessary in all sorts of places. And so that's just, that's going to change the dynamic of where people go uh, if people disperse to other places that aren't as popular now? Are we just bringing those same problems? I think the issues around climate change, that some of these places are just going to be transformed in ways that we can't anticipate. So what will it even mean to be photographing some of these places in 25 to 50 years because they are going to look so dramatically different? 
I think on the positive side that I've seen some really positive changes in the US landscape photography community, where I think things about like personal expression is now a term that pretty much everybody talks about. Yep. And that's exciting. That's very exciting. And I think it's very positive that people see photography as a form of creative expression. And I think a lot of photographers, at least in the US, there is a community of people who are working with smaller subjects. Some of my friends are trying to get naturalist certifications. They want to learn more about the ecology of a place. And then they're communicating that in their photography. So I think they're doing really positive work to bring more information to their audience about some of these things. And I think that's that the fact that seems to be a trend, I think is a very positive thing. So the, all those are pretty small. I don't have any grand, huge pro projections, but those are a couple of things on the positive and the negative. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. What do you like to do when you're not taking photos? <laughs> take more photos. <laughs> I have a huge garden around my house of mostly perennials. So lots of native plants. And that has been, we built a house and had bare land. And so to take that bare land and turn it into a garden that brings in hummingbirds and moths and all sorts of insects, all sorts of bees. Like it's, we have all sorts of little animals living in there. It's very fulfilling to feel like I took bare land and turned it into something. And then I cook a lot. So I'm very interested in cooking and gardening. I think those are the two things I'm doing, but it's hiking and photography, number one. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you. I'm gonna ask you probably one of the hardest questions I've got, which is who do you think I should be talking to on the podcast? Since I mentioned film photography, I'm going to mention two film photographers for cool. different reasons. Alex Burke, who's a photographer that's working in the US, and mm -hmm. I just really love his work. And he's, we don't know him well, but every time we run into him, it's like, he's a, I just like the way he approaches the world. Um, he's very hardworking. He, but he, so a lot of film photographers, it seems like they have, they have small portfolios. He has, a very consistent output. And I think that's an interesting, if you didn't know he was a film photographer, I think his output would suggest that he works with digital photography. Right. So that's just, I think an interesting dynamic. He has a diverse, interesting portfolio of work and I, he's an explorer. So I'm just, I've, we saw him recently. So he bubbles to mind as somebody who I think just has an interesting outlook. And the other person who is a film photographer is Michael Strickland. If you watch his Instagram stories, he has developed the most impressive print lab in Kansas. And it's okay. just doing, he's really doing some very innovative things with printing. And I think that he, it's been fascinating to watch him take this empty building and turn it into this print lab where he's doing all sorts of alternative process type things. He's going to start teaching. It's just, it's so impressive to see how much somebody has transformed in terms of their level of knowledge and like leading a field in just a couple of years. So I, I both really like his work, but I also find his, what he's been doing around his print printing facilities just to be very inspiring. So I'd say Alex and and Michael would be two people that it would be interesting to talk to that I think it just have a different view on nature photography because they're taking a different approach than a lot of people are. Fantastic. Thanks, Sarah. 
I've got one more question, and it's the most important question that I okay. ask my guests. <laughs> Do you like pineapple on pizza? Yeah, sure. I will. I don't eat ham. It would be weird just having pineapple all by itself. Like, what is it? What? How is pineapple served on a pizza in Australia? Uh, it's usually on what's called a Hawaiian pizza, which is mm -hmm. typical tomato base the um ham cheese and pineapple yeah so that's very similar to what it is yeah. in the u.s but since i don't eat ham it would be very i think it'd be weird just to have pineapple yeah i think pizza. you need that saltiness to offset the, yeah. uh, the sweetness <laughs> so back when i ate meat yes i would eat a hawaiian pizza <laughs> now <laughs> it would just be like yeah I'd, there's something better out there for me <laughs> fair enough all right thank you very much for uh spending some time with me sarah it's been wonderful getting to know you uh, a little bit better where can people find your work uh, my website because my husband's name is spelled very strangely and we share a website is smallscenes.com very Fantastic. simple all right brilliant thank you very much sarah yeah thank you it was so fun to just chat about photography so i really appreciate the invitation and the time we spent together so thank you absolute pleasure thank you Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. <clears throat> I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube and Facebook oh, and Instagram as well. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm -hmm.